We come back now to Matthew's Gospel where we left off two weeks ago in chapter 18. In chapter 18, beginning with verse 15, isn't exactly that kind of blessed hope kind of message that you might like to hear. But it's a message that we, all of us, need to hear. As Andrew was reading Psalm 86 this morning, verse 5 was what stuck out in my mind as something of great significance to us here this morning. And verse 5 of Psalm 86 says this, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Last week we read Psalm 99, and in that psalm it talked about Moses and Aaron and Samuel. And it says there that to them God is the God who forgives. Forgiveness is what we are going to be looking at here this morning in Matthew's Gospel. And I want you to understand that this is not to be intended as a condemning message, but if if the shoe fits, wear it. In other words, this may apply to any number of us in this room here today, but if it does, it's for the purpose of bringing restoration. It's for the purpose of establishing a church without spot or wrinkle. It's a purposeful message for those who need to hear it so that they can get themselves in a place where they can say, I am free from the bondage of sin in my life. Now, that's a tall order. Every one of us are sinners. Every one of us should know that there is no way that we could ever say in this present hour that we are without sin. John tells us that very matter-of-factly in First John. You can read that very short letter. And John says there, if you say you are without sin, you are a liar. And then he says, liars don't get to go into the presence of God. So that's a very serious thing, isn't it? Well, how do we cope with this issue of lying or sinning, no matter what the sin might happen to be? Sin is sin, as far as God is concerned. The reality is, a sinner who simply bears false witness is just as much a sinner as that one who is an extortionist or a thief or an adulteress or an adulterer or a murderer. All sin, from God's perspective, is sin. And he says, because he is holy, that he cannot dwell in the presence of sin. And that means that sin cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. That's why Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Be holy, for your Father in heaven is holy. It's not try to be. It's not maybe you can accomplish this on your own. He says it very, very simply. It's a command. Be holy. Well, how can I do that? There's only one way. You must be born again. And being born again, then you are filled with the Holy Spirit who enables you to accomplish that which you cannot do yourself. Those are simple truths in the Word of God, and we need to adhere to them and understand them well. But what about this issue of forgiveness? Well, let's take a look at what is said in Matthew's Gospel and see perhaps if there is a need in our own lives, individually, to address it. He says in verse 15, Jesus has been telling his disciples some very important things about the kingdom of God. 
How do we enter in? You must be like a child, he had told them in verse 2. And what about this issue of who is greatest in the kingdom? Well, that question was answered by Jesus in a very, very wonderful way. The only ones that can say they are great in the kingdom are those who can say, I have childlike faith. And in verse 15, after having spoken about the fact that he is like the one who is a shepherd, who has a hundred sheep, and he counts 99 and realizes that one is missing, and he takes the time to set those 99 in a safe place and goes looking for the 100th sheep. That one lost sheep was important to him, the great shepherd. And when he finds him, he rejoices and brings that sheep back into the fold. Because it's not God's will that any should perish. So keep that in mind as we continue in this passage that we're looking at in Matthew's Gospel. It is not His will that any should perish, but falls on us. Verse 15 again says, Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. If your brother sins. The assumption made by Jesus here is that a sin has been committed. He doesn't say here, if you think your brother has sinned against you, because if that is an assumption that you are making about your brother or sister, it could be wrong. Perhaps you misunderstood. Or perhaps you were told something by somebody else that you associated with this individual as being sinning against you, and it never happened. That can be a very serious issue. But Jesus is saying, look, if he has indeed sinned against you, then there is one option and one option alone that you should take the time to hear and apply. And again, he says it very quickly and simply, go and tell him his fault, just between you and him alone. Privately. Now, in today's age, it's so simple to take your phone, your cell phone, and text a message and send it off. That's not the appropriate method that Jesus is referring to at all. Don't use Facebook, Twitter, or any other messaging system to tell somebody, hey, brother, hey, sister, I've been offended by what you said, so that the rest of the world can see it too? Is that your intent? Well, Jesus is saying this is a private issue. It's not like this individual has publicly done something that the whole church is aware of. It's talking about something that somebody may have done in your own situation, in your own life, that has troubled you deeply. And you're so troubled, you don't want that to cause bitterness in your heart against your brother or sister. So the thing to do is go to that one and let that person know, hey, what you said really hurt me. What you did, oh, I've been so terribly troubled by that. I need to talk to you about it. So that's the approach. Go to that one. You can make a phone call and say, hey, can we meet together sometime soon over lunch or coffee? That would be a good thing. Do it privately. 
You don't need a group of individuals to join you at this point. It's just between you and that individual. And then Jesus says, if he hears you, you've gained your brother. That's the whole purpose of all of this. If you've been offended, you go to that one and you tell that person that this is what I am feeling, this is what I have been experiencing since you did or said this. Let's talk about this. And if that one says, you know what, that was stupid of me, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? You've gained your brother or your sister. It works well when you do it right. And that's what Jesus is saying here. It will always work for the good if you do it God's way. However, we tend to do it our own way most of the time, don't we? But you've gained your brother if you do it the way that Jesus tells us. And it's not just a recommendation. This is a command. But, in verse 16, there is a likelihood that that brother or sister might say, Hey, get lost. It is what it is. Suck it up. I meant what I said. I did what I did because it was right for me to do so. And you're not going to change my thinking on this issue at all, no matter what you try to tell me. Well, that brother is rejecting God's plan. Obviously, more needs to be done. So he says in verse 16, If he will not hear... Take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. Every word. All right, well, that does mean something to me. It tells me that two or three witnesses are required to kind of put together the whole story, because oftentimes we only hear one side of it. If you only have one person telling you what happened, the other persons that's involved may have a different point of view, may have other things that can be said or should be said, either in defense of him or herself, or to t- completely turn the story back on that other person. It can happen. The book of Proverbs is a great place to go, by the way, when you're thinking about conflicts between individuals. One of the Proverbs, I think it's in Proverbs 18, you can look it up, it's, uh, if, if you have an issue with a brother or sister, state your case, and then the other has an opportunity to state his or her case. And that's the appropriate method that Jesus is referring to here. Both sides, every word must be considered. And that by witnesses, two or so, three maybe, people that you trust, that you can bring alongside with you, going to this person that has offended you and say, look, let's get this story right. Let's work this out. This is what I have believed took place. You tell your side of the story to these people and they will help us to determine whether one or the other of us is telling the truth or needs to change his or her position. This is very much in line with Deuteronomy's command to the people of Israel that they should take two or three witnesses. In the presence of two or three witnesses, an issue must be resolved. But in verse 17, he says this, If he refuses to hear them, 
This is again assuming that that individual is still in the wrong if he refuses to hear them tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and like a tax collector. Tell it to the church. That's a difficult passage to think about because I don't believe, and some teach this, but I don't believe it means let everybody in the church know. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 deals with issues between brothers and sisters in the Lord. And in that particular chapter, Paul is addressing the Corinthian church who was most apt to take an issue and bring it to an outside court, outside of the church. The civil courts, they loved to take people to court, apparently. That was part of their culture in that day. I hope it's not your intent to do that sort of thing. Oh, I spilled this hot coffee of McDonald's coffee on my lap. Now I'm going to sue McDonald's for $2 million because the hot coffee was too hot. Well, some people can do that and get away with it, but that's not for the church to do. In fact, you're not to take any dispute outside of the church, but first try to settle it within the church. And Paul describes how to do that. It's very much in line with what Jesus is saying here. Paul asked a question, Do you not have wise men who can judge rightly in the church? Why take it to a magistrate outside of the church? Take it to those who are appointed for that purpose within the body of Christ. Now that tells me that typically in a church like ours, we have elders, a pastor, the elders, the other, who, other people who are involved in leadership, you all know them by sight, if not by name. Those are the ones that you need to go to, not the whole church, but bring it to the attention of the leadership of the church. And let the leadership of the church judge where the two or three witnesses were not able to. A final judgment needs to be made at that point. So this is practical, very important, step-by-step instruction by the Lord on how to deal with issues that come up with each other so that we don't remain at each other's throats. Take note of the fact that if that one chooses at that point to still remain firm in his or her conviction, and it is certain that that conviction is indeed wrongful, then there's no other alternative but to tell that individual Sorry, you're not allowed here anymore. Until you change. It's for the purpose of restoration. Let him be like a tax collector. A tax collector was considered a rebel in Jewish lifestyles because that tax collector joined forces with Rome against his own people. The Gentile in the Jewish mind, was one who would not be even allowed to come near you because you are a Jew and he is not. Simple as that. Pharisees and scribes were so strict with this that they would cross the road to get to the other side of the street if they saw a Gentile coming from the other direction. They didn't even want the shadow of a Gentile crossing their path. 
What Jesus is saying here is, don't have fellowship with that one until he or she comes back and says, I so blew it. And then receive him or her. That's what Paul alludes to also in 1 Corinthians, where in chapter 5 he talks about a man who has his own father's wife in a sexual relationship. Paul tells that church in Corinth, force him out of the church for the purpose of restoration. And in chapter 2, or, or rather the second letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, by that time that individual has indeed repented and is now accepted back into the church. Great victory for the church when such things happen. And it's for, again, the purpose of restoration that Jesus speaks on this very topic here. Verse 18 says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Why does Jesus say that? Well, you may remember back when he was talking to Peter, after Peter had made the proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus had talked to Peter directly and said, and you, Peter, you, Peter, will be given that authority to bind on earth and it will be bound in heaven, to loose on earth and it will be loosed in heaven. Actually, the original Greek language, the tense is a, a tense that kind of implies an ongoing event. It's like really better translated, whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. He told that to Peter, and much of the church thinks, well, that's because Peter is the one who has that authority, and none other have that authority. But look again, we're here in chapter 18, and Jesus is saying the same thing to not just Peter, but it is in plural form, I say to you all, whatever you all bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you all loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's not just Peter he's talking to, he's talking to the church. All of us have that authority. It's a moral authority, not a political one, but a moral authority that is given to the church for the purpose of judging what is right and what is wrong within the body of Christ. That's all that that really is applying to. Then in verse 19 he says again, I say to you that if two of you, remember going back to getting one or two witnesses, if two of you on earth are concerning, concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Note the context. He is talking about binding and loosing in a situation that involves a sin by one individual and is addressed by another individual and a group of individuals who finally come to the conclusion that that sinner needs to be set apart until he or she repents. Binding on earth, binding in heaven, loosing on earth, loosing in heaven. And then Jesus just basically is saying here, whatever you decide because you have come by faith in this way to accomplish this particular purpose in agreement with God, then what you have done is right. And I'm there in the midst of you to acknowledge that rightfulness. 
Now, that passage can also apply to the prayer meeting. I don't discount that. And in fact, I encourage that. When two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of you is a very wonderful thing. So when two people or three people gather together in prayer before the service, he's right there in your presence. That's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. I know I'm mispronouncing that, but that's for emphasis. On Mondays, when the women come here and fill this house with praise to the Lord and pray, petition on behalf of many of us, for the church, for the whole world, whatever it is that the Lord puts on their hearts, do you think Jesus is not there with each of them? I hope that you understand that Jesus does promise that He will be indeed with them. That's a good thing. Alan Redbath, a former pastor of Moody Church in Chicago, believed that that really was far better to understand in the context in which it is written here. And you think about what he's saying in this context. You're dealing with a very, very important issue. And you don't want to do it wrongly. You want to have the Spirit of the Lord involved. You want to have Jesus affirming what you are doing before you take any steps that would involve sending somebody out of the church. And so there's a sense of fear that should come over us when we read this passage when it says, there I am in the midst of you. You know, I don't know how many places in the Word of God where it says when Jesus appeared to an individual, the, the individual said, Oh, hi, Jesus, glad you're here. Nuh-uh. When the Lord appeared to any of the individuals in the both Old Testament and New Testament, they fell to their faces on the ground. Oh, God, have mercy on me. That's the kind of presence that we all should be wanting to experience when we're dealing with such issues. To know that if we do it wrong, there is no good thing that will come upon our lives because it is displeasing to Him. Fear the Lord in these issues of judgment. Peter somehow, through all of what Jesus has been saying, starting with the beginning of chapter 18, where he talked about you must come as a little child. Talking about the fact that issues can come up in the church that need to be dealt with, Peter began to think, well, Lord, how often should I forgive? The implication is, that forgiveness is in this portion that we have just completed. The individual comes to that other person who sinned against them, and that person repented, and you've won a brother, and there is forgiveness if you, the one who have been troubled, are willing to forgive. But if you go away from that confrontation say, There, that fixed him, that's not right. You've just sinned against your brother who you say sinned against you. You need to experience on both sides 
that level of forgiveness that God expects. Peter caught on to that. And he asked a question again in verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him. Up to seven times? Pretty magnanimous of Peter to think that. Seven times is way beyond what the rabbis taught. Rabbis in their day said, you can forgive three times and after that, it's done. And a lot of people say, well, that's where we get three strikes and you're out. It's kind of that implication by the rabbis that there is a limit to how many times you should forgive somebody. And three times is all that they recommended. After that, that person's not ever going to change. He'll remain a wicked person in your sight forever. But Peter says up to seven times, thinking, well, that's at least twice what the rabbis say. That's probably pretty good, huh, Jesus? Am I right? Seven times? That's pretty amazing for any one of us to count that many times of the fences that come our way by one individual and still be willing to forgive. And then after that, I can clock them. No, Jesus answers this. And in verse 22, read it carefully, Jesus said to him, do not, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Now, if you have the NIV or the ESV translations, you just read 77 times. Pretty much every other translation in the English language translates it 70 times 7. And that really, frankly, is a correct translation. It's in the Greek language exactly that way. It means what it says and says what it means. 70 times 7. 490 times, if you can't multiply that in your head, I'll give you that. 490 times. Okay, that's easy. There's one. You got 489 to go, and then I'm going to kill you. Oh, there's a second one. Oh, you're doing it again three times now. Who's going to keep counting to 490? Anybody? What Jesus is here saying is, look, It is well beyond your ability to keep track of these things. So if you're going to not forgive that person, (laughs) you're in trouble. You're likely not going to ever forgive that person. Bitterness will set into your heart. Anger. Hatred. Do you want that? I certainly don't. I think it needs to be dealt with, don't you? That's what Jesus is saying. It needs to be dealt with. Don't worry about how many times. Just do it. Forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive over and over and over again. That is the command of our Lord. No matter how many times you have to be doing so. That takes a lot of effort. Commitment. To God and to your brother or sister. Now, verse 23 and following, Jesus tells a parable. And he's driving home this very point with regard to forgiveness. Verse 23 Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like 
a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Now remember, parables are stories that are given that parallel truth. He's giving this parable to show something that needs to be understood by everyone who reads these parables. Now, some parables were very hard to understand. Remember, the disciples would ask Jesus more than once, Lord, what did you mean by that? But other parables, like this one, are so, so very straightforward and easy to understand. Even the simplest mind can put this one together. And since I don't think that there's any mind here any more simple than mine, then we're in good shape. A certain king, that has to be the Lord. The servants would have to be you and I. And that's the only two things that you need to get right. Well, there's another one besides that, but it's the actual context and content and meaning and depth of sincerity and importance that Jesus places on this parable. Take a look at what he says. He wanted to settle accounts with his servants. So in verse 24 it says, And when he had begun to settle accounts, one of them was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. I'd like to spend a little bit of time with that phrase because it can be a bit... Well, translations vary and it's not the translations that are... I'm bothered with it's the interpretation of what this means by so many expositors. You will find all kinds of variations as to what amount is this actually. Well, it depends on a couple of different things. First, a talent is not a coin, it is a measure of weight. And in Jesus' day, that measure of weight was about 71 to 75 pounds. It could be a talent of gold, or it could be a talent of silver. So without defining what you're referring to, the numbers that you come up with can be so far apart from one another. So I'd like to take you through just a simple mathematical example of what I think probably would be most likely how much this might come to. I'm reminded that in our nation, we have a debt ceiling. That debt ceiling in 1960 was $3 billion. It's a lot of money. That debt ceiling in the, what, 80 years? No, 60 years since 1960, 62 if you want to be exact, has been changed 78 times. The debt ceiling of 1960 was three billion. The debt ceiling in 2021 was 31 trillion dollars. That equates to about 89 million dollars per person. Now if you take your average wage in the United States in 2020, 2021 or so, it was around 70,000. So let's say it's today 75,000 dollars a year. It would take an individual earning $75,000 a year 1,200 years to pay off that individual debt 
that the government is putting on our shoulders. Isn't that great? That's good news, isn't it? That feels wonderful. I've got a 1,200 lifetime debt that I owe. Well, if you look at what Jesus is saying about this servant who owed 10,000 talents, going back to that, let's assume a couple of things. First of all, that the talent that he's talking about is a talent weight of silver. That's 71 pounds. I'm going to round it down to 70 pounds of silver. Silver, right now it varies between 16, 18, maybe up to $20. I'm going to give it the low end of the scale, $16 per ounce. So, you take those numbers, 10,000 talents, 70 pounds per talent, times 16 ounces per pound, times $16 per ounce, and you come up with a small sum of around $179 million. One man owing $179 million. How long is that going to take him to pay? Well, let's assume that we're still dealing with the average wage today of $75,000 a year. It would take the average person, not 1,200 lifetimes, 2,400. I should say years. Not lifetimes, years. 2,400 years. 1,200 years in the first example with our government, 2,400 years in this example in the Word of God. I'm not going to live that long in this body. Neither are you. The servant must realize that what he has before him is a debt that he cannot pay. And that's the illustration that Jesus really is trying to make. The servant of the king cannot pay his or her debt. That's you and me. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. You recognize the problem and the solution in this passage? The king has wanted to settle accounts, and he will. At the end of every one of our lives, accounts will be indeed settled. And the debt that we owe is remarkable, way more than any one of us could ever possibly pay. Verse 25 says, but as he was not able to pay, acknowledge that yourself. I'm sure that you have, if you're a believer. Cannot pay the debt. It's too much. Way beyond my ability. As he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and all that payment be made. There is no hope no possible way. The only solution for that individual is to go into debtor's prison forever and ever and ever. Not only him, but his wife and children. Sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? The point that Jesus is making is that's what should be done to such a servant. But... Verse 26 says, The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay all. No, you won't. 
That's impossible. Have mercy on me. That's good. That's where they needed to go. Mercy. Have mercy on me, O Lord. I am a sinner, and I need your forgiveness. And there is no hope for me to pay that debt. But I know Christ on the cross said, It is finished. And the debt was indeed paid. He fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. That's our God. He is moved with compassion when we come to him, acknowledging that we have a problem that needs to be dealt with that only he can deal with for us. He was moved with compassion. He released the servant and forgave him the debt. Oh, that sounds so good. God forgives God forgives. He was to Moses and Aaron and Samuel, the God who forgives. The psalmist in Psalm 86 talked about how God does forgive those whom He loves. This is the Gospel. He forgave him the debt. Verse 28 says, But, now here's the part of the story that we don't want to hear. But, the servant went out and found one of his fellow servants, a brother, a sister in the Lord, who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, a denarius in that day was about a hundred days' wages. In that day, a denarius was worth about what we would say is around 35 or 40 cents in value today. That's all they made. But today, we're working... On a different scale, aren't we? We're making $75,000 a year. So with that, it looks as though the debt probably was more in the area of twenty dollars to $25,000. Pretty good sum, but nowhere near the $179 million that the other servant owed the master. You get the point in this, I hope. The difference is so vastly distant from one another that it's almost ridiculous what we see taking place. He laid hands, it tells us in the latter part of verse 28, and on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. That's what the first servant said to the master. Same plea. And here's the thrust of Jesus' message. Verse 30, And he would not. What did the Master do? The Master forgave. What did this servant do? Held the grudge. Insisted on being paid. Would not. Accept the request of his fellow servant. He would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Well, Jesus goes on to continue in this parable. And he says in verse 31, So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, that's all of us, we see what's being done in the midst of the body of Christ. We see who's being hurt, who's being shamed, who's being ridiculed, who's being taken for a ride. 
His fellow servants saw what had been done. They were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. And then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? That question is the bottom line of this parable. That is where we all need to go. Should you not also have had compassion? Forgive. Why? Because He forgave you. Jesus on the cross, our example. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. In that place of death, Jesus was asking for the Father to forgive Stephen, the first martyr of the church, stoned to death. And as the stones were flying, he looked up into heaven and said, Father, don't hold this against them. Do not hold this to their charge. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgiveness. If God says, I'm willing to forgive everything. Why are you not willing to forgive such small things? How dare I set limits on my forgiveness to others? Well, I'll forgive him, but I won't forget it. Then you haven't forgiven. I can't forgive him. It hurt me too deeply then ask the Lord to help you to forgive him because it's your responsibility to do so. I'm reminded of a very popular account given with regard to a woman who long ago now has gone to be with the Lord. Her name is Corey Tenboom. Corey and her sister were put into German camps during World War II. They were in the same barrack together and they found opportunity from time to time to study God's Word and there was a great deal of anger that was developing in Corey's heart over the way they were being treated by the German troops that were guarding those barracks. After the war, although Corey's sister had died in concentration camp, Corey made it successfully into her freedom, and she became a speaker and God used her mightily in the church. There was one time when she was speaking before an audience that she was talking about that event that really drove her to the point of such great anger against the German soldiers. And after the meeting, after she was done speaking, she was greeting individuals, well-wishers, one of them that came up to her with tears in his eyes. Corey, can you forgive me? I was one of those soldiers guarding your barracks. She recognized him. And as soon as she looked into her, his eyes, she felt such hatred entering her soul 
for that individual for having done so much to her and her sister over all of that time that they were locked up into that barracks. You're asking me to accept you just because you say you're a Christian? All of those terrible thoughts came into her mind, but then Corey realized this passage in Matthew chapter 18, no matter how difficult it was, and it was, Corey stretched forth her hand, and as she did so, she felt the love of God completely overwhelmed. Find forgiveness and you will have His love sweep over your soul. I'm convinced of that. Why must I forgive? Because He did. And it's not just giving lip service. It's from the heart. It must come from the heart. Jesus was asked earlier on in His ministry by His disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer. It's a model of how to pray. And you all are familiar with it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus gave that model prayer to His disciples for a reason. In its complete contextual setting, it is a model for living for Him. But in the middle of that prayer is something of such great importance to all of us. This issue of transgressions. Read it or listen to it again. Do not lead us, or rather forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. After giving that prayer to His disciples, Jesus said these words found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Listen, brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. And what Jesus is saying to them, He's saying to all of us here today as well. So I ask, are there any of you here who are holding a grudge? Who are withholding that forgiveness that Christ, for your sake, was willing to give to you? Because He loves you. He forgives you. Can you not forgive? Are you holding back on your forgiving your brother or sister? The day is at hand, my friends. God does not want to come for a blemished church. 
And it's my responsibility as a pastor, as a shepherd of the flock, to proclaim these truths to all who would have ears to hear. Yeah. This hasn't been what you would want to classify as an encouraging message. If it's convicting, it's because it's supposed to be. But if we don't do what God says, how can we expect Him to do what He has promised on our behalf? It tells us so plainly. Verse 33, Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due to him. And so my heavenly Father also will do to you, each of you, from his heart, if you do not, from your heart, forgive your brother. From your heart. Not just lip service. Make it real. Do it now. At least as soon as you are able. Paul wanted to present the church as a chaste virgin. That's my goal. That's my hope. Forgiveness is central to this. I pray it's your goal too that you, all of us, would be willing to forgive. And it might be costly. Yes. Embarrassing. Yes. But why would you want to stand before the King ashamed? of what you have not done if it was expected of you to do that very thing that you refused to do.